All right. Um, when we were first, um, when we first moved to Windsor, we moved into this downtown neighborhood, and um, we're part of this this community. Maybe you heard me talk about them. Uh, a really formative five years of our life, the downtown Windsor Community Collaborative. And we, I lived within walking distance of the office, and so I'd walk, uh, you know, five minutes to the office. But before turning the corner and before heading into the office, I'd often take a deep breath because I never knew what the office environment was going to be like. In this one particular day, I walk in, and Bob is there. Bob is my co-director, the founder of this organization. And Bob is there with two of his friends from the local mission, and they have bikes set up in the office. Our office is pretty small, so the bikes take up a lot of the open space. And they are rigging up with bungee cords, a sharps container, you know, one of those yellow sharps disposal kits, to the back of a bike. And I'm like, okay, what are we doing today? And, uh, and they tell me, well, Bob's got this new idea, which was working with Bob. Bob always had a new idea. That's one of the joys and loves of working there. And Bob's new idea was, you know, we we're in the middle of this, you know, opioid crisis that many, many cities were facing, and Windsor was just really reeling in it. And for us, you know, as young parents who moved to the downtown, uh, our kids were three, one, and one. And we, whenever we'd go to parks in the midst of the, you know, the height of this opioid crisis, we'd have to do a scan for needles and sharps before we let our kids really go in the playground. Um, and so this was sort of like the waters we were swimming in. And so Bob's idea was, we're going to bike around the downtown, and we're just going to pick up needles. And that was like the first part of the, of the plan. And the second thing, he's like, and then we're going to do some data collection. We're going to you know, use a map, and we're going to point, um, make a little dot on every needle we pick up. And, uh, and so this was the beginning of the needle bike program that was really, really a, you know, really a grassroots idea, uh, really innovative to clean up the downtown in a, you know, a small-scale way. But also, th that data collection, two years later, was used by the city of Windsor uh, for where, you know, as they were installing needle boxes, permanent needle boxes in, the, you know, in parks and, and our downtown landscape, they used some of that data to figure out where they should put the boxes. And so... As I was walking into the office, you know, seeing this needle bike idea, kind of going like, what are we doing now? You know, seeing the fruit of some real innovative grassroots stuff, as I said, was really formative and impactful. I was, you know, I was part of this innovative not-for-profit that was willing to take risks and experiment and reflect and learn. And part of that was failure. We didn't always get it right. But really was a, really was a normal day for me in downtown Windsor. So we are entering into, we have already entered into the season of Lent. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. And for Lent, we're, we're wanting to, to do something where we look at the humanity of Jesus and we consider the idea of like body language and postures and what was, what was uh, you know, the, the posture of Jesus, the posture of, of Jesus' friends and family. And just that prayer we read this morning from Teresa of Avila, that ours is the body of Christ. If we are the hands of Christ, if we are the feet of Christ, then ours is the body of Christ. Then our body language and our posture matters. How we show up in the world matters. So the invitation for this Lenten season is for us to pay attention to the, the body language and postures of Jesus and his friends and followers and reflect on them for us individually and collectively. And our first posture that we're looking at today is the courage to risk. And if we find it in Matthew 14, it's uh, maybe, maybe a familiar story to you. 
goes a little bit like this. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. So I wonder, you know, in this, in this, this particular story, as we consider this idea of, of courage and, and risk, what is the focal point of the story for you? Where do your eyes and your imagination focus? If we were to sit with a story in sort of a meditative Lectio Divina type practice, one of the prompts, one of the questions for us to consider would be what words or phrases jump out at us? Where do our eyes go? Where, do, where does our attention go? Where does our focus go? And as I was digging around this week with this story, I found this, uh, this blogger, Gina Watts, who said, there were 11 other people in this story, and we never talk about them. We only talk about Jesus, Peter, and Peter's failure. Why is that? Maybe it's because at our core, we'd rather be chilling in the boat than walking on the water. Her point was that we tend to focus on Peter, which makes sense. It's logical to focus on Peter, but we also tend to focus on his failure and not his courage. If we were to step back and sort of frame the story for a moment, earlier in the chapter at a fancy dinner party, this guy named Herod, the Tetrarch, beheads John the Baptist, and news of this spreads, and Jesus eventually hears about it. This is his cousin, so he's, he's uh, naturally met with grief, and he pulls away from the crowd by boat, but the crowd follows him. They're pretty relentless, and here we encounter the story of the feeding of the thousands, and in that story, we see evidence of scarcity, it's late, there's no food, and there's no imagination for how to provide food to this crowd. And then after this story, Jesus d sends his disciples on ahead by boat while he stays back to dismiss the crowds. And when he dismisses them, then he goes away to the mountain, to a remote place to be, to be quiet, to get away from all, these, all, the, all the people, and, and maybe to process some of that grief and to pray. And we read that it's in the middle of the night with the boat being battered by the waves, when Jesus decides to cross the sea on foot. This is the famous story of Jesus walking on water. And so early in the morning, Jesus is about to pass by them. And early, you know, through the early morning light and the waves, these, these friends and followers, they see him, but they're, they're kind of spooked by him. They're, they're quite likely exhausted and drained, and they kind of believe that he's a ghost or a dream or a haunting vision. And there's this interesting parallel that maybe you're seeing in the story that, that I was seeing to how, to when people in the, in the gospel stories in scripture really at large see 
the supernatural angels, what happens? Well, there's this sort of pattern that Jesus follows here. They're scared, and Jesus riffs on that familiar refrain, have courage, don't be afraid. And so these are, these are important words for us that set the tone for the story because every time an angel shows up in, in the gospel stories or in scripture and says, do not be afraid, it sets the story up for something. It sets the story up for, for a, a hard ask. There's an invitation for something incredibly hard and risky that's coming. That's why the angel is there to say, don't be afraid because there's going to be something difficult following it. And there's 365 fear not verses in scripture. You could look at one every single day of the year And if you did, you'd see this pattern emerge and develop. So Jesus shows up in like manner, inviting a response of courage beside their fear. Then Peter asked Jesus for his, you know, two-step verification code. Uh, How can I know it's you? You know, give me the six digits. uh, You know, seriously, if it is you, Jesus, tell me to come out on the waves. It's a really strange way of saying, of verifying his identity. You know, uh, it's like he's saying, if you were really Jesus... You'd ask me to do something difficult and challenging and risky. Prove that it's you, Jesus. That's the Jesus that Peter knew. And so Jesus does just that. He calls him out on the water. And just like that, seemingly without without hesitation, Peter steps over the edge of the boat onto this wavy water. And this isn't still water. This isn't like a beautiful glassy pond. This is windy, wavy, stormy seawater. And we see that Peter walks on the water. For a short time anyway. And then something happens. I I grew up, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, watching, you know, uh, Wiley Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. And, you know, always the same trope happens where the Roadrunner, you know, he's smarter than the coyote and he he leads him off a cliff. And for a moment, for a moment, Wiley Coyote thinks he can, like, you know, stay up there. He's he's almost suspended floating in midair until he realizes that the, the solid ground is gone. And then, you know, we get the, like, the scrambly feet and the animation noises, and then he plummets, right? And Peter kind of has a similar experience here. He's, he's, he's moving on the water without really realizing that the ground beneath him is not stable. But then something happens. Maybe his rational brain kicks in. Maybe he becomes acutely aware of his fears. Maybe he, he, he hears the wind and the waves. That's what the scripture tells us. And, and his, it cues in, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't really possible. I'm doing something out of the ordinary, unexplainable, and he loses focus on Jesus, and he starts sinking. And here, we, we put on our critical hats from our seat on the boat. We say, look, look at Peter. He failed. He failed. And I, and I, I love this, um, this quote I found from Erwin McManus. Erwin always just has a way of capturing an idea. He says, I love this reminder that it is only through faith that we can travel to places where God calls us to go, And I love this moment that Peter is so criticized for, that Peter didn't have the faith to walk on water, but he was the only one who had the faith to get out of the boat. It's a beautiful, succinct way of of moving our focus from Peter's failure to Peter's courage. Gina, in her second part of her quote, says, Peter is the hero in the story. He's the risk taker. He is the one who, if only for a moment, allows his faith in Christ to dictate his walk. So, our, our posture that I'd love us to sit with and maybe just mull over today, this week, is this idea of having the courage to, to risk, to step into the unknown. As we consider this posture, we have to recognize it's not about just having courage 
to replace our fear. It's about having courage beside our fear, even, even as we feel afraid. My, my nine-year-old daughter found this phrase in a book called uh, The Courage of Sarah Noble. I think this is where she got it from. She told me, so if I'm misquoting, it's her fault, okay? My, she said, Dad, in this story, this, this girl, Sarah Noble, she, she talks about how courage doesn't replace fear. Courage comes beside fear. And so at our, all my kids now talk about having courage beside our fear. When we're afraid of something, and yet courage emerges beside it, adjacent to it. And I love it. It's a beautiful phrase. So courage doesn't erase or replace fear, but it comes alongside and helps us face our fears. In fact, we should probably be cautious of anything that tells us not to be afraid. Fear probably is a good thing to have at times. Otherwise, we do really s- silly things. And so this, this posture is about embracing some risk. Risk is something we try to avoid, maybe seek to mitigate, but we do need risk, especially our kids. Our kids need risk. They need healthy, good, safe kinds of risk. Risk helps us break out of our shells, get beyond our comfort zones. I should clarify, we do need healthy kinds of risk. Uh, I've told this story to only a few people. It's kind of embarrassing. Um, We live in a remote context where we don't have a lot of internet provider options. And so last summer, I found Starlink, which is the low-orbit Elon Musk satellite internet, and I signed up, and they just send you a box. They don't install it for you. So I had to scale my roof and get up there and install this thing. In the summer, it was great. It was easy. Well, a few weeks ago, um, I I got a, a notification on my app that there was something wrong with my connection, so I checked all the inside stuff, and unfortunately, the connection was broken up on my roof. And I was like, I need, I need to work. Like, you know, I have, I have a job to do. So I was like, I guess I'm going up on the roof. Um, so I, I scaled this roof, and we have kind of have like a, it's just above the kitchen. It's just a story and a half, but, you know, a regular peak roof. And then there's like this little subtle roof just over the kitchen. So I climbed up on it, and I couldn't get up on the peak. So I was like, I need something that'll, like, help me hook and pull myself up, right? So I'm looking around, and I find a sledgehammer, Right? I just heard somebody laugh. Yes, yes. You can see where the story's going. Um, so I, I pull myself up. The sledgehammer works perfectly. It gives me the length I need to pull myself up. I'm up on the roof. I find the parts broken. I got the satellite, broken satellite in one hand, the sledgehammer in the other, and I begin to sort of rappel down, and I slip. And I went down the first part of the roof, and then I hit that, like, second part, thinking I'll stop, but I just slid. And... Huxley was in and out, checking on me, okay, dad. And he sees me sliding off, and I just leapt off the roof. I landed on my feet, no injuries, super lucky. I launched the sledgehammer 20 feet across the driveway. I don't even remember doing it. It just landed over there somewhere, which sounds like if my kid was outside, that would have been super dangerous, right? Like a flying sledgehammer. And I think to myself, I I did all of this just to provide you with an example of dumb risk, right? Now you know. Healthy risk, healthy risk, you know, for Peter was braving the waves, knowing his friends were there. Jesus was there. He's a fisherman. He probably knows how to swim pretty good. There was a social safety net there. Dumb risk maybe would be to try to walk on water by yourself in a storm. So, you know, this, this story, I think of another story of healthy risk, the ascending out of the 72. Jesus sends these, these 72 followers out, you know, with no money, no, um, no, no bag, no food, no social security net, uh, nothing really to, to bring. Go into the, into the towns and, like, really, you know, 
put yourself at the, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves, kind of. Like, just go at the mercy of these villages and receive their hospitality. But where it's kind of more healthy is that don't go alone. Go in pairs. Go together. And so both of these stories remind us that, that, that as we embrace risk, we also have to do a little bit of reflection. I think of this, the story of the 72, where after they come back, they debrief. They debrief what happened. What do they see? Afterward, uh, Jesus and Peter talk about what held him back, what caused him to sink. After I fell off the roof, I reflected that a sledgehammer was not a climbing tool. Here's what we know, though. Here's what we know. Fear keeps us in the boat. Risk gets us out on the water. But failure often accompanies risk. And if we are so afraid of failure, we will constantly root ourselves but on the seat in the boat. We'll never get out of the boat. Failure, uh, what I learned in, in sort of the nonprofit world was, especially, you know, five years with this really innovative nonprofit, is failure is often a catalyst for some really creative experimentation and innovation, makes us wiser, helps us try new things. Failure accompanied by reflection, though, makes us wiser and more creative. And so for us as a church and for our transition team and for us as individuals, my hope would be that we would be willing to ask big questions to take healthy risks, to have courage beside our fear, and then to reflect together on our steps and our missteps. So in the remaining minutes, perfect. Uh, we still have a few minutes. I'd love for us to do a little bit of a practice around reflection. And so, you know, one of the things we do as a church is we do this service and learning uh, Sundays where we, we are, in a sense, putting ourselves beyond our comfort zones. We are stepping into a bit of risk. We are hopefully making ourselves uncomfortable because we are trying to serve and learn, or learn for ourselves and serve our community. So that's one maybe thing that you might think of. But I'd love for us to pause and consider a time when God called you out, called you to trust, called you to trust and follow him, and you braved the unknown to trust and follow. So let's take 30 seconds of just quiet. Bring something to mind. A story, a memory. Maybe you've landed on a story. If not, continue to, to find one. Um, but as you, as you think about that story, can you bring to mind the fears that were part of it? How fear maybe framed the invitation that Jesus was, was inviting you to? And maybe think of what were the risks? What were the things that you weren't so sure about? And then the third sort of part of this reflective exercise is just a reflection of, like, what did you learn? I often think of, of these experiences. You might think, well, I learned that I'm not good at something or I, I failed. Um, and often failure can be an amazing catalyst for learning. And I would say that failure is not the sinking. Failure is the absence of, of learning. Failure is the absence of, of pausing to reflect I think of, of Peter as this guy who, in this part of the story, 
He's just stepping out of the boat. And then fast forward to, you know, the first couple chapters of Acts. And this is the guy who made sense of, like, Pentecost coming. This is the guy who, as he's walking around, his shadow is healing people. You know, there's, there's progress. There's learning. There's development. There's Peter arriving in, in and of himself in this calling, this ministry, that Jesus says, feed my sheep. I'm going to build my church around you. And I think part of it is connected to Peter just being willing to get out of the boat and learn and reflect and identify before anybody else in that group, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. So the posture for us today, for us to think about and, and, and think of and reflect on, is this, this courage to risk. Individually, collectively, for us as a church, would we, would we have courage to risk uh, and follow after God. I, I want to end with this prayer by Walter Brueggemann. And then you're free to, to stay here for a few minutes. We have to be out of this space by, you know, 10, 15, as our friends um, from Trillium come in. Uh, if you are newish, new, newish, just want to hang out, those two options were uh, come to the gym or head upstairs to the, um, is it the Kitchener East water, or Kitchener East neighbors group? I'm looking for, I see head nodding, yep. Uh, if you want to play some games, hang out with Kitchener East. See what neighbors groups are all about. You can head up to theirs as well. And so I'll just end with this prayer by Walter Brueggemann. It's kind of an invitation. It's, a, it's kind of a riff off of Psalm 135 uh, where he's talking about they worshiped the idols and became like them. He says, The idols have ears but do not hear. So unlike you, God, for all your hearing. So like us, ears but do not hear. You have endlessly summoned us. Shema, listen, pay, listen up, pay attention, heed, obey, turn. We mostly do not, in our narcissism, in our recalcitrance, in our departure from you. And so we pray for ears open, attentive. Call us by name so that we know. Call us to you so that we live. Call us into the world so that we care, call us to risk, so that we trust beyond ourselves. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.